Yeah, so if you don't know me, uh, my name is Jay McCumber. I actually serve as uh, uh, Minister of Regional Leader Development here at Cornerstone. So uh, the Lord has opened up a door for me to serve through uh, teaching the word ministries and Netzer in the, uh, the regional church. So if you draw a triangle from Philly to Baltimore to Harrisburg, I move around a lot in that, in that, uh, um, that, that triangle, that area, um, serving the church in a lot of different environments and a lot of different ways. And so um, when I come back here to Cornerstone, Cornerstone's my sending church. And, um, I served on staff here for uh, 12 years, and um, Cornerstone is still headquarters. My family still lives in Lebanon. And so uh, when I come back here for Sunday mornings, um, it's with a time of, like, update and report, um, not as to what I've been doing. Uh, if I mean, I'm glad to talk about that, too. However, I just think that would get boring. Uh, as, as much as it is what, what God is doing, and what I see happening in the uh, the regional church. So um, so when I teach, it's from a perspective of th- this is what's going on. That's to do two things. Number one is to inform uh, you because you're part of the regional church held within that geographical area. So uh, for you to know what it is that somebody like me is seeing a- across the board can be really helpful for you to have like a 30,000-foot view, per se, of, uh, of what it is that's happening. Number two, it can inform your intercession. Um, both for God's church and also for me and the work that I do. Uh, so when I come, I generally come with pretty heavy concepts. Um, if you'd rather nap than listen to me, that's fine. Uh, uh, so, you know, d- do what's good for you in this spot. I'd encourage you to listen. I think there might be some good stuff for you in it. Um, but but we are going to go to some pretty deep things um, this morning because God is doing some I, – I, God's doing some deep re- reforming of his church in this season, and uh, it's getting to some very personal levels. So I'm going to s- talk about some very personal things today um, as far as like who we are as persons and how we relate together and how we relate toward God and how that's both healthy and unhealthy. And so uh, hear these things not, not as personal, but just as a viewpoint, a, a thematic construct of a lot of things that we're observing at Teaching the Word and at Netzer across the regional church. What I suggest this provides for us is, like I said, uh, something to fuel our intercession. So these are themes. These are constructs. These are uh, both either attacks from the enemy or ways that God is strengthening and reforming his church um, in this season. They, they may or may not apply to Cornerstone. They may or may not apply to you as a person, but they, they, they might. So listening with an open heart and open mind personally, but also listening corporately and thinking about ourselves as a regional church is important. Um, one of my favorite things about uh, the body here at Cornerstone is that we were planted all the way back in the mid-90s with the idea of we are part of a regional church. And I've been amazed at how foreign that concept is for most of the American Western church, um, where it's it, you, know, you open the book of Acts then, and in five minutes you can show people how regional church works, and it's just like a light bulb goes off, like, whoa, I never, I never saw that before. And that's uh, both a real shame and a real joy uh, to see what it is that God is, is doing as he's redefining and recalling what the true church is um, and, and how it is that he means for us to, to live and to operate. So uh, it's great to be here. Um, and uh, I, I just saw Julie Martin walk in, so everybody say hi, Julie. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Where, where the heck is DJ? Yeah, I, yeah, I know. I'm joking. All right. Uh, <laughs> DJ's leading at Parker Ford this morning. 
So, uh, yeah, it was really good to see you. Uh, glad that you're here. Also, just wanted to um, uh, just thank God for what it is that he's doing in our regional church. Um, so I just want to stop because God is growing his people. So let's just stop and thank the Lord for that. Uh, God, thanks so much. Even today as we prophetically sort of represent um, what it means for us to be a regional church and the fact that like you know, corner, some of Cornerstone's leaders are at Freedom in Christ and some of Parker Ford's leaders are here and Julie's back with us today and some friends from Lancaster here joining us and uh, just all these different kinds of uh, movements and ways and things that it is that you're doing in and through us. We just look across the body of Christ and say, man, God, thank you. Thank you. You are on the move and you're building your church just like you said you would. Um, so God, would you use today to align us more deeply with your work to understand your heart more fully and what it means for us to be your people in this season for how it is that you're building. So just like Jesus, God, we want to join your flow um, and we want to receive your heart and move in those ways. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been teaching this first stuff everywhere uh, that, that I've been recently. Um, and it's the concept of of a kingdom leadership model that's based on the church truly uh, being what Jesus names and describes. And I've taught this here at Cornerstone multiple times, so you folks are, are familiar with it. But when Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he does that in Matthew 16, which is long before the church ever is created in uh, Acts chapter 2. Um, and so he's speaking language they know, that the church is a purposeful body that's vested with his authority to actually live out and change the culture in which we live. Um, and so on many levels, what is in the world for both good and bad is the fault of the church. And that's not a shame-based proposition as much as it is just like we're the most powerful government entity in the whole world. We are the kingdom of God. And our king has forever vanquished sin, death, and the grave. So our ability to then walk in the power of his government is, is, is huge. And, and so how we think about ourselves as cultural uh, shapers uh, um, around us has everything to do with how we think of ourselves as, as the church, um, which is built around the idea of the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, so this is government. Uh, the, the gates of a city where government was enacted, the gates of hell, the government of darkness, cannot prevail against the government of God and his kingdom. This is enacted by the church binding and loosing things. Um, by, by binding sin, and restricting sin from flowing, by, by, by loosing the freedom of God's heart, that where the law of sin and death brought condemnation, Paul says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from that law. So we can stand as people who, who as believers in the places where we are, be it together on a Sunday morning, or be it in your workplace during the week, or in your home, um, or in, in intercession and in spiritual warfare and in, in how you think about things, how you think about yourself, how you think about one another, um, the, the binding and loosing, the question of, God, what are you doing? What are you restricting? How do I restrict that? Um, you know, what, what's around me? Hate is around me. Wow. Let's, in Jesus' name, we bind that. And in his place, we lose what? Love. Uh, you know, we, lose, we lose courage. Whatever it is that God's saying. We, and, and then we act on that. We live on that. So then where we see hate, we actually speak against it, and sometimes we use words, uh, binding and loosing. Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. That's Jesus rewriting this law, that the old law of sin and death is gone. The new law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has come. So you've heard it said, hate your neighbor, hate the Romans. But I say to you, no, 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 love your enemies. 
you've heard it said that you only need to only need to forgive people seven times, and then that's it. Your quota is met. But I say to you, seventy times seven. Right? Jesus is rewriting this, and so I think this should be our posture as believers. I think this should be the way we think that we should engage our coworkers and our peers and our friends and our uh, um, and, and the world around us with this. What you you maybe have heard it said this, and you think you've been taught to think like this. However, Jesus says think like this. And not dictatorial in that as much as there's a better way. You know, like there's a better way. I've been using this painting a lot, which we've used a lot. Justin's taught us from this a few times. I think that this this is the perfect, this is Bruegel's Tower of Babel, um, which where you can see here, this is a very unified movement producing a very poor structure. (laughs) Uh, You know, like everybody's all hopped up on let's build a tower to heaven. However, um, in and through it all, uh, it's going nowhere. If this tower is finished, what's going to happen? It's going to fall down. Who's it going to fall on? The people. The people building it. And I think this really perfectly represents this construct that I've taught on before uh, here at, at Cornerstone. And this is going to be our focal, focal point for today. Um, so unity is based in agreement and oneness is based in covenant. Um, to drive this home, uh, Unity is something that we together uh, should seek. Like, don't hear me say unity is bad. Unity is good. Uh, Paul says that we are to, to uh, seek the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Good stuff. Um, unity is based in, in our agreement around something. And then, and then movement toward whatever it is that we're agreeing around. So we all agree together that the Eagles should win another Super Bowl. And... We then form ourselves around that, you know. Uh, I mean, honestly, folks, if you, if you were having a bad day, the fact that I just said the Eagles won the Super Bowl means now you're having a good day. It's fantastic. We, we agree together around things. And honestly, a sporting event is one of the biggest places of agreement you're going to find. The, we, we all and we all get real excited, you know, and, and all hopped up on what it is that we're agreeing to in that moment. And we agree that was a crappy play, and we agree that was a big win, you know. And so you can hear just crowds go up and down, you know, all in agreement because you're unified around something. There's there's lots of things to unify around. Uh, we we rally around all kinds of points of agreement, whether or not they're the points of agreement that God wants us to rally around has everything to do with what births our unity. So hear me say this really clearly. Unity is not good enough. Unity is wonderful. But it, it, it's not strong enough. The reason why is because you can agree around things that aren't God. There was lots of unity at the golden calf. There was lots of unity in the crowd that cried crucify him. There was lots of unity among the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. There was lots of unity among the people of Israel. Let's let's worship idols. So so you can agree around things that actually are detrimental to what it is that God's trying to do. Which is why we're meant to live our unity out of another place. And we're meant to live our unity out of oneness. Because whereas where unity is based in agreement, oneness is based in covenant. So take your Bibles and turn to the book of John, chapter 17, please. 
in John 17, Jesus has just done a large amount of teaching to his disciples, and he then moves into a posture of prayer. And in John 17, he's praying for his people. And it's wonderful. John 17 is a place where Jesus prays, not just for the people that he's with then, but we're actually mentioned in John 17. Jesus is praying not only for those, these, he says, but also for those who have yet to know me. That's us. And so we're on God's heart and mind here in John 17. We'll pick up the reading in verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Jesus sets up a number of truth statements here that are important. Number one, he, he, we, you and I, and his prayer for us is to feel the fullness of joy. A corollary for an, a regional update is that right now the church across that region that I talked about, an observation I would offer is that joy is very difficult to find in the people of God. Joy is, I would suggest, a, a principle I live by is joy is the first casualty of spiritual warfare. The peace is, follows quickly behind it. Uh, but, but joy is the first casualty so that when things get hard, the first thing that gets sacrificed is our joy, which stinks because uh, in spiritual warfare, you need strength and courage. And what's your strength? The joy of the Lord. So if joy is the first thing that the enemy can get from you in spiritual warfare, that means that you don't have resources to fight the fight. And then you end up uh, petering out. You end up getting pilfered and just sort of, it's a, it's a slow decline into joylessness. And it's just it's ugly. Some of you know what that feels like. Um, so uh, joy is, is what Jesus is praying for, fullness of joy. Number two is that notice that it can be thwarted. Notice that whatever is Jesus praying for can be thwarted. He says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So, so the, the battle is real. Jesus is praying something that, is, it is, that are real, true statements here. But, but there is an attack against these things. There, there is the movement of the evil one wants to come against what Jesus is praying for here in John 17. Lastly, he talks about sanctifying them in the truth. Verse 17 your word is truth. And then Jesus says, I consecrate myself in order that they might be sanctified in truth. So the word of the Lord is something that I would suggest that we think of as secondary or third dairy, if that's a word, um, <laughs> as opposed to primary. Um, don't get me wrong. It's important. We want it. However, we, I'd suggest that the truth of God, his word, be it the scriptures or be it the way he reveals his word through his people or through his spirit, to our spirit, we sort of just invite that to be a, a participant at the table. Like, yeah, you know, so my feelings are over here, what my friend thinks is over there, what God says is over here, and we sit down and think, what should I do? Or who should I be? Or who am I? And, and we, listen, we listen to the truth, but we also listen to our friends, and we also listen to our wounds or our experience, and we sort of, like, do the math then. And, and it's important, but it's just a participant at the table. 
Jesus keeps praying. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Right? So that's, that's you and me. So he's coming off of this truth concept. In other words, that truth consecrates us. It sanctifies us. In other words, it keeps us clean and it keeps us moving. So God's word, his truth, is what keeps us clean and what keeps us mobilized. Sanctification is a walk. It's a journey. It's a set apartness that's walked out in our life. And so when we are not, when we are, when we are dirty and when we are stuck, I would suggest to you we have a problem with truth at that point of who's calling the shots in our lives. Where's our standard? What's real at that moment? I do not ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me, you and me, today in our current contemporary culture, Jesus' prayer deeply applies, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Fourthly, the accomplishment of the Great Commission is hinged on the oneness of the body of Christ. That I'm, we are one, I want them to be one, in order that, the world might know that you sent me. So when it comes to our ministry, when it comes to our mission as a church, that's that's dependent on our ability to walk out oneness that's held in the covenant of who God is. So if you're in John 17, stick your finger in John 17, go to Ephesians chapter 4, and you can see the interplay between unity and oneness. Ephesians 4, we're going to start in verse 1, and just notice the words, that Paul chooses. Paul starts, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, and here's the first word, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he launches into this. There is one body And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he speaks of the necessity for unity, and then he bases that in the oneness of not of our ability to hold it together and agree around something, but in the oneness that is God himself. Which means that oneness for us is something that exists outside of ourselves, and that we're invited into in Christ. So that when you and I become part of the body of Christ, when we become a son of God, the bride of Christ, the flock of God, the family of God, the temple of God, when we're invited into this relationship, it's, we can't make oneness happen. We can make unity happen. It won't be functional unity, at least not for very long. But we can make it happen. We cannot make oneness happen because oneness is not based on our ability to agree around something. Oneness is based in God's covenant with himself and his covenant with us. If you have your, your uh, bulletin, there's a couple of um, quotes in the reflect section that I'd like to look at. Because what I, I'm seeing and the major theme I want to bring for you today is that covenant is very, very misunderstood and is very, very up for grabs in 
the broad swath of the regional church. Um, it's, it's a foreign concept, much more foreign than I was aware of. And, uh, and furthermore, it's, it's misdefined, misunderstood, I think. Two things. First thought there on your bulletin. This is from Tim Keller. He says, sociologists argue that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer model increasingly characterizes most relationships that historically were covenantal, including marriage. Today, we stay connected to people only as long as they are able to meet, uh, as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. When we cease to make a profit, that is when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we are getting back, then we, quote unquote, cut our losses and drop the relationship. This has been called commodification, a process by which social relationships are reduced to economic exchange of relationships. And so the very idea of covenant is disappearing in our culture. Covenant is therefore a concept increasingly foreign to us. I would suggest that there is nothing more countercultural to an American cultural mindset than the idea of covenant. And that's because we base our construct for how we live and who we are in Western culture, particularly in American culture, around a misinformed and misdefined concept of freedom, which means I get to do whatever I want. And that's what it means for me to be free. However, covenants are very binding. Covenants by nature limit freedom. That's what uh, Christopher Wright says in the next quote. He uses the Exodus as a, as a model. The Exodus was not a movement from slavery to freedom, but from slavery to covenant. Redemption was for relationship with the Redeemer to serve his interests and his purposes in the world. So freedom is certainly solidified for the people of God, but freedom is defined by being in covenant with God. Freedom is not defined by me sitting down with these different ideologies at the table, having a conversation with myself, and then deciding which, which, whichever one it is that I want to do in the moment. Those are two very different ways of thinking about things. And how we think about those things has everything to do with whether or not we're able to possess the presence of God in our midst. And to really tend to it well. Because if covenant isn't present, then that means God's not present. Because God interacts with his people through covenant. It's a stretch for any pastor to ask people to remember things from like eight years ago. Um, but do you, do you folks remember a teaching that I did, a series on the chain of relationships? That's wonderful. Thank you. Even if you don't and you just said that to make me feel good, I appreciate it. The chain of relationships was, a, it was sort of a paradigm that the Lord gave me for thinking about the different relationships. Hey, it started in my life. Like, how does God want me to steward myself and my relationships? Because, like, this, it's not, it wasn't working at that point. And so God helped me with this, and then I brought, I think I taught, like, almost a whole year on the chain of relationships. And uh, um, I actually went back and listened to a few of those things, which is something that, as a teacher, you should do every now and then to remain humble. Because, uh, man... Eight years ago, I was like, wow, that's a, that's a different person teaching up there. He's teaching with a whole level of confidence that he does not have a right to. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the chain of relationships, uh, for, just as a reminder, it was a way to think about the different relationships in our life. So um, 
A, and these are, I would, what I taught at that point, I still believe, is that all of these are covenantally bound on some level or other. God brings himself governmentally to the world through covenants. You see it all through scripture. He covenants with his people, then he walks out that covenant. Uh, and I think that when we're made as image bearers, he calls us to do the same thing. We walk in different levels of covenant with different people. So my level of covenant uh, with a friend of mine is not the same thing as the concept of covenant I have with my wife. Uh, it's, it, it's very, very different. At least it should be. Uh, or else we have a serious problem. So the way we think about these covenants in these seven links is toward God. Our covenant toward God. Our covenant toward our spouse, if that's applicable for you. Our covenant toward our children, again, if applicable. Uh, fourthly, toward our significant kingdom relationships. Fifthly, toward our calling. And for me, it was that one that was way out of whack. Uh, and I would suggest for a lot of us, we've been taught, it's that one that's way out of whack, where if you're not exhausted at the end of your ministry life, then you haven't done a good job. Uh, it's, uh, it's twisted. Uh, then toward people affected by our calling, and then toward people yet to be affected by our calling. And you can go back and check out those archives if you want to have a chuckle for yourself as well. Um, however, today I want to focus on these four um, right here. Because the goal, if you remember from the teaching for the chain of relationships, is, is not to make sure that the order is right. I think the order is important. What's most important is for the links to be equally strong. So this isn't about perfection in a certain way. This isn't about me getting my relationship with God right so my relationship with my spouse can be right, so my relationship with my kids can be right, so that I can judge all these things and live in a shame-based view of myself and God toward me. Um, rather, it's about being in them. It's about being in it. And so what, what, we, what you want is a healthy, strong link for each covenantal relationship so that you're in each one. In a, in a life-giving way, where even if things aren't good in your marriage, you're in it. You know, so things might not be perfect, and things might not be right, but they're healthy because you're in it. You might be really struggling with what it means to have significant kingdom relationships that are life-giving. But the point is, is that you're, you're in it, and you're pursuing it, not that it's perfect. So the, the health is very important. When I think about covenant in today in the church, as I get across it and, and see things, I'm seeing covenant distorted and twisted in a way that's breeding some deceptions and some lies in these first four links. And so I just want to talk about these first four links and an observation that I'm having from each one, from again, from across the, from across the regional church. So this may or may not apply to you. If it doesn't apply to you, don't be offended. Uh, um, just consider it with the Lord and see what it is that God has for you um, as we think about some of these observations. Um, so... Let's take a look at these first four links in light of uh, a covenantal understanding of what it means for us to be who God calls us to be toward him in, these, uh, in, in this season. Is what I'm saying making sense? Okay. All right, good. That wasn't as resounding as yes as I was hoping for. Um, but maybe it'll start to make sense. F- first link toward God. My, my exhortation toward the church would be to only choose journeys to which God is calling you and stop trying to be cool. Only choose journeys toward which God is calling you and stop trying to be cool. I'm watching people watch journeys that their friends are having or that culture is having 
and going, I'm going to try that too. Where it's not actually something that God is bringing into their life. It's, it's an observation of what's happening in someone else's world or someone else's life. And it can be somebody that that, that, that person doesn't even know necessarily. Just, just, just seeing it. Or I read a book. Or I saw a film. Or, you know, or I, I heard about this, or a friend was relating to me, so now I'm thinking like this. And, and there's a lot of different things that are, that are uh, swirling in this world, I think, um, when it comes down to how we think about who we are. Um, it's very important for you to walk the journey that God is calling you to. It's very important for you to understand that God does have journey, journeying for you that he wants you to be on with him. But if it looks like your friend's journey or my journey or somebody else's journey is cooler or better or worse or more interesting than the one that you're currently on, that's not necessarily a call from God for you to do that. For example, right, for, for example, uh, number one, a very uh, interesting thing that we're observing in Netzer is uh, the reclamation of the freedom to drink alcohol in the church. Um, which I think is a very good thing because there was a very shame-based view of that for decades and decades where the world does this and Christians do that and we just drew a black line in the sand and off we went. However, what we're seeing is as people engage alcohol, the body of Christ is actually being divided along lines of I hang out with people who can drink and don't hang out with people who can't as much anyway because I don't want those people to be uncomfortable. I don't want those people to, like I don't want to be a stumbling block. However, I do want to have wine at my party. So what I do in that spot, what we tend to do, what we're seeing, is we're watching people divide along this. Not, not in active ways. Nobody's upset with anybody. Nobody's hurt or anything like that. I don't, I'm not suggesting we become teetotalers or, or that we become alcoholics. You know? uh, what, what I am suggesting is that, is that the, the, the way that we think about, and I think alcohol is just an example, when we think about our freedoms, and the way we think about what it means for us to be free in Christ needs to be guarded really well in a way that we're actually receiving what that is from God and not from our, our brother or sister. So I'm very glad that brothers and sisters can drink alcohol. I drink alcohol. That doesn't mean you should. It also doesn't mean you shouldn't. What it does mean is that, that, that that's my journey. And that's, that's your journey. And how we walk in that together, like there, you, we just need to guard very carefully to be sure that we are, from our oneness, people who drink or don't drink, that like Paul says, that alcohol isn't the issue, that the oneness and the love of Christ in the body is the issue. And so that as we walk this thing out together, we're not, we're not sequestering people or only joining with people who have fun doing the same things that we do. This is very true of people who are younger than me. I'm 40. I'm 41. Uh, we, we see this very active in 20-somethings and 30-somethings, and, and trying to figure this thing out. And rather than deal with the relational tension around it and having a good conversation, maybe with friends who choose to not drink at all and who believe that really strongly, just not having that conversation at all. And it's very non-edifying. That's a good conversation to have, no matter how uncomfortable or weird it might be. Uh, a second thing that we're seeing people, and this is where this stop being cool concept comes from, um, 
is, uh, so there's two, two big things that I get worried about. Number one is uh, the megachurch and the way that it was built. Uh, when, I, when I look at that and what that's produced, a culture of celebrity and what Sky Justani would call church incorporated, um, I, I don't worry at all about the people who are part of that. I worry about the leaders and, and, and how that affects a leader and what that does to, to, to a leader. And don't hear me saying that megachurches are bad. I don't think that they are. I am saying I don't understand it. And how to be a leader in that system is, is very difficult for me to know how to do that with God. Um, and I have friends who are pastors who say those exact same things. Uh, I, this is so hard. I never thought that it would be this difficult. I was just on Friday with a guy who wept for an hour. 2,000 people in his church wept for an hour because he felt like he's been wasting his life building something big. And, and nothing's changing. Lots of money, lots of people, no impact. And so I'm watching that. At the same time, I'm watching this other thing happen, which are spontaneous, large worship gatherings, um, uh, be it the Hillsongs or the Bethel or the Passions or whatever you want to call it. Again, nothing wrong per se with these experiences. However, I would suggest that people are coming together just to have an experience. Um, it's a cool thing to do. I mean, Justin Bieber's on a spiritual journey. Dude, dude is wicked cool, right? I mean, but just here, I saw this Instagram photo of Justin Bieber with his shirt off and his tattoos reading his Bible on, him, on his jet. And there I was. And I immediately thought to, I, I just, this is my confession for the day. Um, I just immediately thought to myself, like, you've got to be joking. And then I thought to myself, holy crap, I'm a horrible person because here's a dude reading his Bible. Like, here's a kid, like, on a journey with God and some idiot took a picture of him maybe it was hot on the plane he wanted to take his shirt off or you know he's got a great physique maybe he wanted to sit there with his shirt off I don't know his tattoos are sweet um what do I care the guy's figuring out life with God you know and however the fact that Justin Bieber is figuring out his life with God is not a reason for you to you need to pursue God and be in a relationship with God because because he's God. God's way better looking, has much better art on his skin, and, get it, skin? Yeah, yeah. Much better art on his skin, and actually wrote the book. You know, so, so what's happened, like, we, we have got to let the journey be the journey of each of us with the Lord and stop trying to be cool together. And and like I said, I, I, I worry about when we get big groups with one another. The consumeristic commodification mentality takes over, and it's about the experience of being cool. Because in that moment, we can convince ourselves we're very cool. Because there's a lot of people being cool with us. So, only choose the journeys to which God is calling you and stop trying to be cool. Um, second link, toward our spouse. Avoid contractual agreements with your spouse that have the appearance of godliness. This produces a marital relationship with no spiritual power. Um, I've created this thing called a continuum of control. So on the one side, it's just like basic relational contracts. You know, just the, just the butch, as I would suggest, is the first step that we have with other people in a way to have control in the relationship in our lives. On the other side, it's just like straight out Jezebel spirit, you know, as bad as control gets. Um, 
in the scriptures is, is the Jezebel spirit. We're not going into either one of these things. However, what I'm seeing in a lot of marriages particularly is uh, spiritual codependency um, that that's, exists somewhere on the continuum where uh, spouses are losing their own personal identity and their own personhood for the sake of existing in deeper marital contracts with, with one another. Um, so here's an example from my life. Uh, it might, this might not have anything to do with you. Um, there was a big movement uh, when I was in uh, college and seminary that said um, a man should never, ever be alone with a woman. Uh, and, like, that's just wrong. It shouldn't be anywhere. You should never be, al- never be alone with a woman. And uh, I got into ministry and started, and, and initially, like, thought, I'm going to do that. Like, because, well, people I looked up to said, you should do that. And it seemed like that's how you avoid being in a, a bad situation. And, you know, adopting that is, is fine. A lot of people call that the Billy Graham rule. Um, and Billy Graham wanted to do that. Wonderful. Good. I'm glad that that worked for him. However, um, it oftentimes then becomes a contract where this is how I'm going to guard my marriage. There's a lot of people who live by that rule who still lost their marriage. Um, because I suggest what that provides is a, a road, it's a contract that we make with our spouse that leads to spiritual codependency. Um, by that, I mean, um, I mean this. What, what I began to learn quickly was what my posture of I'm never going to be alone with a woman says toward all women. That, that women, as, as, as a category, are not trustworthy. They probably want to have sex with me. And that on some levels they're dirty. And, and it's something I need to stay away from. And, and you'll hear people, leaders older than me say, I've never met with a woman alone. And my question is always, I wonder how that made the women in your congregation feel. I don't know what that was like for them. And I think this is coming to a real head right now when it comes to hashtag me too. Um, which I'm sure some women in the room are just like, Here's a white, powerful man on a platform who just said hashtag me too. Um, <laughs> like, seriously, dude. Um, yeah, sorry. Uh, uh, I, I think it's getting compounded and it gets getting compressed. And right now we're reacting against a lot of things that are very, very worrisome that we absolutely need to be concerned about. But the way that we hold those in our marriages needs to be held very, very carefully. Because the people of God are not called to react in situations like this. So if, if I am drawing boundaries in my life as a person that are based on my spouse's weaknesses or based on my spouse's uh, uh, inability to differentiate from me from an unhealthy construct of what it means to be one flesh, um, if that's what's driving my choices toward other people, I'm very, very quickly getting toward being spiritually codependent with that person, which usually means that I'm God codependent. Uh, Listen to this. Um, A second related form of religious codependency or spiritual codependency results from serving a codependent God. So codependency means I derive my identity from another person on some level. Suppose for a moment, and then how that person feels about me determines who I am in the moment. Suppose for a moment that God has poor boundaries or that God spends his days in a frenzy trying to get us to make the right choices or that God's mood is completely dependent on the choices we make. Happy when we make good choices, sad when we make bad choices, 
Or suppose that God is full of resentments because he is always the one who has to solve the world's problems. Or suppose that God is manipulative, trying to get things to work his way by using indirect and dishonest means. If we serve a God with any of these characteristics, we are probably in for a very troubled relationship with that God. It is possible to serve a codependent God, where God serves our needs and we serve his needs. But it is also physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausting. I think a codependent God births codependent marriages, where if I feel like how I live and how, who I am as a person, the decisions I make affect God's love toward me or mood in general or how it is, his, whatever emotional health it is that he needs to be in for that day. If in the morning I'm worried about what it is, that, whether or not God is happy or sad that day based on what I did the night before, I've, I, I've now got a codependent God who's relying on me to get things right so that he can feel good about himself. And then I think we project this immediately to our spouses. So we look at our spouses and go, what can I do to make you happy? And then she says, do this to make me happy. And then we say, okay, I'll do that. However, we've never stopped to ask God how it is that he wants me to be in order to love my wife or order to love my husband. We don't stop to act. Here's a woman. I'm just going to draw a hard boundary 20 years ago. This says, I'm going to think about you a certain way. What I'm not going to do is be in the moment and say, who are you as a person? And Lord, how would you have me relate to you? It, it, it's, a, it's a dehumanization of that person. And it's a dehumanization of our spouse when we do that toward them. And we make those kind of assumptions. And I think it comes straight from what we, a lot of us were taught, which is that how God feels emotionally and his emotional well-being is directly correlated with how you live your life. And that is not true. And how we live with our spouses should be the same way. But I see, uh, I see couples making false agreements, false contracts together that keep their marriage and themselves very safe, but they don't have power because they're not in the moment together of who are you, how is this supposed to work right now in this moment. Not how did it work yesterday, not, do I, not how do I hope it will work in the future, but who is this person and how can I engage in it? Number three, our link toward our children, if applicable to you. Remember, remember the order. Obedience leads to honor. They cannot be what you need them to be. Obedience leads to honor. I tell young parents this all the time. The most important thing you can do for your child is teach them to obey you. To obey. The foundation, the foundation, not of the breaking of the will, but the foundation of naming the covenant that your child is in covenant with you and therefore how you live toward them in being sure that they know who is drawing the dimensions and the boundaries of the covenant builds a healthy foundation for them to grow as a person into a young adult where then we can think about what it means for them to be honored as the full person they're developing to be. I heard a young couple a few weeks ago say, we're thinking about a major life change, but we're not sure uh, and we're positive that God wants us to do it. We're just not sure that our four-year-old is ready for it. And I just said, hang on a second. What does your four-year-old have to do with this decision at all? Well, she's really sensitive, and 
um, you know, she's like, uh, she's got a, she's got a real, uh, um, she, they said something like a really great, a really pure relationship with God. And so we're just assuming that when she feels good about it, then we'll be able to follow this. That's very, very dangerous. I mean, th- these parents are relying on their four-year-old for discernment. They cannot be what you need them to be. Right? If you need from your kids, that's going to produce, well, I, frankly, it'll produce codependency. Um, that's another sermon. Uh, but they, they cannot, in fact, your kids, we need to not be funneling any of our personal needs toward our children. They can't bear that weight. Um, what they do need is a connection to the Lord. They need us to lead them to Jesus just over and over and to mine what it is that God has made them to be. So remember the order. Obedience leads to honor. Obedience leads to honor, but it starts in that spot. The most loving thing that we can do is, is lead our children to obedience because that's the most loving thing that God does for us as a good father is lead us to obedience. Fourthly, significant kingdom relationships. This is the big rework for the chain of relationships. If you, if you remember, like we discern our calling by community, within community, not I have calling, and then I take that to my community. So here's a way I'm seeing this across the regional church, is everyone, everyone, that's a ridiculous generalization, a lot of people are self-defining, and they do it like it's their job, and it drives me nuts. So in a conversation, it'll oftentimes start with, you just got to understand who I am. This is how I work. This is how I think. This is what I do. Now that you understand who I am, interact with me like that. That's a really controlling way to live. So, I mean, we should be self-aware. Don't get me wrong. But if I'm going to have a conversation with Barry, I say, Barry, this is who I am. I've got strong opinions. I know what I think. And I say it boldly. So you need to understand that if we're going to have this conversation. Well, what if Barry uh, is a quiet, contemplative, peaceable person? And we sit down together to have a conversation. And I start off with that. And I say, Barry, here's who I am. And he goes, well, Jay, I'm quiet, I'm contemplative, and I'm a peaceable person. You know what we're going to end up doing at that point in time? We're going to end up having coffee talking about the wonder of the Eagles versus the wonder of the Cleveland Browns. And, and probably go absolutely nowhere. Now, I'm sure that'll be a great conversation. It's fun to hang out with my buddy, and those kinds of things are great. However, if these are your king key, this is your key community, you need to put something into that. Like, th- there needs to be discernment around why are we doing this, and what's this about? Where, where it's not just friends chilling. There's, I mean, do that, absolutely. But don't just do that. Have purpose. Have vision to your core relationships, your key friendships, the ones that you really rely on for discernment, for counsel. Like, know why it is that God has formed this and what it is that he's made it to be. That does not take away from the organic beauty of the relationship. That's what a lot of people think happens. I'm, I'm encouraging us all to have a define the relationship conversation with our, with our core group of friends. The beauty of that is that Jesus is our friend. <laughs> so when we invite Jesus into this friendship together, 
and open ourselves to what it is that how we're going to be friends, be it as individuals, be it as couples, be it in a group, whatever. But these are the core key people. Well, let's put some definition around that. Let's let's discern together what the purpose of this is and, and the vision of this is so that as we do that and as we walk that out, we're being guided by someone greater, stronger, fuller, bigger than we are. So that my relationship of friendship with Jesus can start to be mirrored in my relationship of friendship with, with, with Barry or with somebody else in my life. But I think a lot of us, we think of friendship as sort of like it just, it just happens, and if I define it, then I'll kill it. However, I suggest that if you discern it, and discern its both purpose and vision with God, it breathes a lot of life into who you are. These four covenants, and the way that these four covenants uh, work together, are the basis, I'd suggest, of how we live out our culture shaping, the way that we actively live in, in, in our world. And to, to, to the degree that these links are healthy and strong and that we're in them, is to the degree, I think, that we can live as powerful people and a powerful church in this world. I would just suggest the four principles I've noted today are four principles that are the things that Jesus prayed about, that the enemy is going to come after them. And I think these are four ways that the enemy is trying to come after us today in our season, in this time. So as you consider these things with the Lord, we do so from a place of confidence and we do so from a place of rest. Because in and through all this, takes. I'm going to head back now to the very beginning of the sermon, which says that we are a covenantal people, not because we've figured out our covenantalness, but because we have been introduced and invited and birthed into covenant with God himself. And so because he is our covenant, and because our oneness with him is our covenantal reality, that then means that we can live in loving and life-giving covenantal ways with one another. And the enemy is going to use all kinds of entrapments to, to, to destroy those covenants. But the covenant of the center of our church today, right here, this is our covenant maker. The cross of Jesus. This is where we come to again and again in our relationship with God or our spouse children, our significant kingdom relationships, or our calling, or the people who we are going to be affected by our calling, or the people yet to be affected by our calling. All of that, all of those covenants and all of those relationships still come and form together around this cross that says we are utterly incapable of making these covenants work. That, that we are completely without the ability to figure this out and to make it happen. To be life-giving in our relationships and formative in our world. But the pressure's off. Because Jesus raised a cup with his disciples and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Take this as often as you do in remembrance of me. Which is why we again, every week, come to the table together to renew, to remember to engage that core covenant again, that all of our other covenants submit to. The covenant that is God's love for us, expressed on the cross. Here at Cornerstone, we sing while we take communion. So uh, 
you can, uh, as the music starts, whenever you want to, you can just leave your place. You can gather over here at the table, which is over on this corner uh, this morning, and you will be served communion at that point. We also offer prayer ministry during our time of communion. Uh, this morning, Mike, uh, Mike Borden and Desiree are going to be praying for us and uh, are praying with us. I encourage you to seek prayer. I encourage you to seek prayer. We, we are all people in, in need, deep need. And, and one of the ways that the Lord ministers his love to us is through the intercession with others. So as we come together at the table to take the bread and to take the cup and to be in the presence of the Lord together, remembering the primary covenant we have, let's do so in deep confidence, in deep, deep confidence in God. That his heart for us is that our joy be full as we live out and walk in the oneness that we have with him and with one another in him. Thank you, God, for this morning. And thank you for our time to be together in your word. Bless us, Lord. Bless us with your mind, your heart, your ways around what it means for us to know you and to be with you, and to be in you, and therefore to be with one another. Lord, guide and guard our covenant with you. Take away the trappings and the deceits that want to redefine you. Take away, Lord, and reveal the trappings and deceits that define one another in inappropriate ways and that keep us from being who it is that you make us to be. Lord, we bless you. We love you. Our hearts are filled with both gratitude and wonder at the power of the cross. So we come to you again today to remember your work, to embody you as we take bread and cup, and to do so as the people of God gather together. In Jesus' name.